Hello, and welcome to The Quantum Divide. This is the podcast that talks about the literal divide between classical IT and quantum technology, and the fact that these two domains need to become closer together. Quantum networking actually is more futuristic than perhaps the computing element of it, but we're going to try and focus on that domain. But we're bound to experience many different tangents, both in podcast topics and conversation as we go on. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to the next episode of The Quantum Divide. This has been, uh, I've been really looking forward to this session, uh, partly because of the break we've had in the summer. We've all been soaking up some of the rays, but also because of the speaker we've got. Welcome, Maria Gragera Gases. Yeah? Good. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you for joining us today. Both Steve and I are here and we agreed to have a chat. I'm super interested in your path into quantum. And perhaps that's a good place to start, right? I understand you're an undergraduate. So give us a bit of a story of how you got into physics, mathematics, and and ultimately how you're now working in the quantum field. Yeah. So I actually started with a degree in mathematics and physics at the University of Bath. And midway through my first year, COVID started. Of course, I got a very interesting first part of my undergrad. And after the second year, we were allowed to choose to go on a placement year, which is basically just a year-long internship that some UK universities do. So I decided to do that, and I ended up in Cisco as a data analyst. And very quickly into my data analyst journey, I realized that was maybe not exactly what I wanted to do. So I had the great opportunity to be in a company which I was allowed to just spend time doing other things as long as I was okay doing my role. And fortunately, I was doing a lot of data pipeline stuff. And because I had a background in coding, I could basically automate that. So I just went up to my manager in Cisco and asked him, hey, can I do other stuff? And he was like, absolutely. As long as the requirements are done, you can do whatever you want. So I started basically knocking on people's doors virtually, but still. And ended up meeting somebody called Santana Ganglu, who was an engineer at Cisco at the time. And I asked him if they were working in quantum technologies because I had heard about it and I was interested. Because yes, we are. Of course, come with me. And he just brought me into the quantum networking research and development team that was partially in Europe and partially in the States. And they pretty much just immediately welcomed me in, which was a really interesting place to be because it's really difficult to get into quantum, especially in the research and development side of things. But I just found the perfect door. And the team was also, they weren't experts in quantum networking. They were experts in networking. And they had physics backgrounds. They were learning with me and they were reading all these papers, going to all these meetings with the Center of Quantum Networks in the United States, which is a collaborator of Cisco, and just trying to learn as much as possible. And I was able to sit on that train and learn with them. And after a couple of months, I also started contributing. So I started doing some of their software work and we started trying out different ideas. And it was a really interesting and special place to be at. After my internship finished, I was hooked on quantum at that point. So I continued working. I ended up working for Stephen Krustinov, which is who is a professor at UMRS in the States. I wrote an error correction library for him. At the time, there was a big boom in error correction. So I ended up doing error mitigation libraries for different startups. And I continued doing that throughout the year. And then the next summer, I've started working in my current role, which is in the IBM. So I'm working with the community team and I'm working in promoting quantum and working with partners that IBM has. Uh, so it's been a really short ride, but a very fun one. I'm interested to know if when you were doing your mathematics and physics uh, courses at university, did you have your eye on quantum at any point or was it just one of the fields perhaps that you could have gone into? 
I think it was one of the fields. So I started with a really straight idea that I wanted to do mathematics. And mind you, I'm not even in mathematics and physics course anymore. So it went, it went sideways very fast. And I started with this really big passion in mathematics. But I decided I didn't want to just do math. Uh, so I honestly picked physics, like how you pick the specific salad you want at lunch. It doesn't really matter to you, but it's here. It's on the side just in case you made a mistake. And it was great because I did. I realized that very quickly I didn't necessarily, I liked math. I've always really liked mathematics, but I don't like the abstraction in pure mathematics. I like the middle ground between maybe the engineering and the pure abstraction. And that's where physics came in. And as I started learning more and more about physics, I just fell in love with it. I stopped courses. I'm doing a pure physics course right now. And within that, I started looking for different things. So because it was an industry at the time when I did my swap into quantum, I knew quantum was big in industry and it wasn't like a purely academic little sphere. There were other opportunities outside of just academia. And that was really attractive to me because I thought maybe I don't want to go down the pure academic path and maybe I don't want to go down the pure industry path. Maybe I want the mix. And quantum allowed that. And then I just asked and I got in. So it was pretty much just a set of coincidences of just being open to other opportunities and being proactive and looking for them. That's often the way (laughs) life goes. That's really good advice to anybody uh, trying to get into the field, especially an undergraduate or, or anybody that's trying to get into the field. I found that there's a huge amount of mathematics, which is key to really understanding a lot of the fundamentals. And Steve, I think we should do a, a series on some of the different mathematics that we think are necessary for to build up to the Schrodinger equation, to to understand wave functions and so on, and then also controlling qubits and so on. I think we should do that as a series later on. What do you think? Yeah, it sounds like a good idea because there's a lot of mathematics and what mathematics apply to quantum is not trivial to know that. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Simple. Yeah. There's a, a little bit of calculus. There's a little bit of group theory, probably not much, and lots of differential equations and, and so on. So there's a, but not everything is in there, right? So real analysis and so on is the depth of that is probably not so necessary. But hey, Maria, back to you. So what, a, what an interesting story and, and kind of journey you've had. Where are you hoping it's going to lead you? Oh, that's a great question. I do not know. So I think in the short term, the goal is to end up doing a PhD. So wherever that's applying this year or in a year or two, I don't really mind that much. But I have found that currently most of the opportunities in quantum are locked behind that little door of the PhD. So I think in the short term, it's doing that. And whilst I do that, I want to see if academia is something I would be interested in. I like the idea of academia, but I've also heard horror stories. So we'll see how that path goes. And then whilst I do that, I still want to engage with industry and have it as another side of the coin and as another side of the opportunity. But honestly, for now, it's just continuing doing what I've been doing. It's just continuing having my doors open, learning as much as I can about anything I've been given the opportunity to learn about and just following the opportunities and the different leads that appear. Generally, I don't really have that big of a goal set in mind. I don't necessarily know. I want to work in this specific qubit uh, for networking purposes or for computational purposes. I don't really mind. I think the opportunities will come by themselves. And I think that's the way to go about it, especially in such a new field within industry. Yeah, for an industry that's booming so so much, it, it is going to be and is needing lots of skilled people who, who don't have PhDs. But 
you're right. If you want to be in research, that's that really is the last hurdle that you have to get over, right? Yeah. And hopefully, I'm hoping that will change, to be honest, because that was what was happening in the AI world back in like the early 2000s, right? You only could do AI if you had a PhD. If you look at the current researchers and professors that are teaching AI in universities, they didn't have PhDs in AI because there wasn't such a thing as a PhD in AI. But that field slowly started moving out of that, let's not say obsession, but that just habit of requiring a PhD as it slowly moves out of academia. And I think quantum might do that. The only issue is that it's not doing it as fast as it needs necessarily. So that's where you get that little loss in between how many people you actually need for a specific project or for a specific goal and how many people you're getting. And I think this swap is going to happen, but slowly. And I'm not good at waiting around. I've got to be honest. I like doing things. So at least for me, I'm going to go with what is required right now. But I'm hoping for the sake of the field that changes slowly in the next few years. I could also comment on this a bit. I think the reason is at the moment, quantum is a very academic field in the first place. So I think as things become more applied, as things become you know closer to the business perspectives, making money with quantum, that's when things will start to change. Right now, it's mostly an academic field where people doing research. Is it going to work? Is it not going to work? We don't, we don't know. We're just doing research, seeing what happens, follow, build some paths, follow them, see which ones survive. And then once the paths become more solid, I think that's when the transition from not needing a PhD to not having a PhD will, will start to come up. Yes, no, absolutely. I agree. I think right now it makes sense that there it's mostly PhDs and professors working in the field, especially because they are the ones who build it, they're the ones who started, that the ones who are. And I have a, a little story from my time at Cisco in which that very clearly showcases that the need for very bad people. I remember very early on when I joined the team, I was handed papers. And if you've done undergraduate physics, you might know this, especially in the first couple of years, you don't even breathe a paper. You don't know what an academic paper is. It's not presented to you ever. And I arrived at Cisco and just 10 papers were put on my table and they were like, oh yeah, read these next week. We'll discuss them. And I was like, oh my God. But I remember an engineer at the time there who was very senior and had seen everything at this point. His name was Paul Polakis. He took me and he was like, Maria, do you know what a Hamiltonian is? And I just looked at him and I was like, no. Okay, we're going to do little one-on-ones and I'm going to teach you the little math and the little quantum mechanics that you're missing. And I was like, thank you. And it was definitely, obviously, I do understand that in most organizations, you can't have the type of like one-to-one mentoring in which people are teaching you from scratch quantum mechanics that you learn at a postgraduate level. And they are having the patience to explain papers to you and they're having the patience to go bit by bit on why these systems work. So that's why you have that requirement for PhDs and professors and, and that type of highly level academic requirements right now. It makes sense, but at the same time, there has to be a realization that there isn't enough PhDs in the world to deal with what quantum, what we're predicting quantum is going to be. So there will have to be this investment in and quantum education in the future workforce of this field. And I think that's happening right now, but more slowly than I think is necessary. Yeah. And on the flip side, industry is developing massively and there's a lot of investment going into, there's loads of different quantum computing companies out there now developing uh, different computing systems or often based on different maybe concepts or techniques. Um, And now a lot of those organizations are funded or working in hand in hand with a university or series of universities as well. They often are spin out. 
But any organization like that, quantum computing or quantum orientated company, maybe creating sensors or whatever, they're going to need, of course, they're going to need engineers and developers and maybe some of those folks, maybe at PhD level or beyond. But you're also going to need project managers. You're going to need hardware architects. You're going to need all kinds of different roles, architects perhaps and service managers, and especially if you're then offering the service as over the cloud or something like many of these providers are doing, then you've got the whole management wrap that needs to sit around it. So there's definitely a blossoming kind of ecosystem of different roles which are going to be building up. Yeah. One, one thing that I have a question for you on is around open source. That's interesting to me because I haven't really had the chance. I'm looking at the industry in a lot of depth, but I'm, I haven't looked into what's open source and what's happening in the open source world. Steve, I know you, you've been doing some stuff in that area, but maybe if we start with you, Maria. What do you know about open source as a whole when it comes to quantum? Can you give me a high-level view? Is that even possible? And do you, yeah. do you contribute to open source? Yeah, so I think the way I was able to continue doing quantum whilst I was still a student, whilst, whilst I am still a student, was through open source. So I'll tell you a little bit about how my journey through this open source world started, and then I think that'll give you a good view of how a person may start and what type of opportunities out there. So the first way in for me was a hackathon. There is a hackathon that happens on a yearly basis and it's uh, funded by the Unitary Fund and it's called Uni Unitary Hack, I think. And uh, there's a 2022 version, 2023 version, 2024 version. And it's an incredible hackathon because they take in projects from all around the quantum ecosystem. Mind you, it might be quantum computing, it might be quantum networking, it might be quantum anything. And they take in these open source projects and they put up bounties um, for different challenges or different problems that somebody may need to solve within this software, right? And I, I joined that hackathon just out of I want to do something with this quantum knowledge that I have. And I've discovered this entire world of the open source community that exists in quantum. It's actually quite diverse and growing quite fast. I think one of the biggest products, if you think about quantum software that anybody starts with, it's QuestKit, which is an IBM product. And their code is open source and it const constantly has challenges published and anybody can go in and decide, okay, then the way I'm going to learn quantum is by taking this little issue and solving it. And I'm going to start from scratch with the QuizKit textbook. I'm going to learn all of that. I'm going to learn how to use the software. I'm going to try to understand what the problem is. I'm going to solve that. That's a way of learning through open source, right? There's a lot of projects that's, and that simulate quite a lot of different functions that quantum computers or quantum systems would do. And the goal of open source is to create these products that are open for everybody and that allow researchers to research with them and simulate things with them, but also to teach people in the process. That's what my journey has been through open source. I've participated in multiple hackathons that had this as an objective. It's not always necessarily software. There's non-software projects that also exist within the open source community. So I participated in, I think it was the European Quantum Internet Hackathon, or maybe it was the World Quantum Internet Hackathon. And in that hackathon, what I did is I worked with a team in order to create an evaluation system on how quantum computers might be more green or more eco-friendly. And we literally just picked every single qubit type and the type of cooling it needed, the type of resources it needed, and just literally created a table. That's still considered open source. It might not be software open source, but it's still a contribution that's going to be open to everybody and that everybody can read and that everybody can learn from that's out there usually on GitHub. So it's quite an interesting way of getting into quantum 
by avoiding that academic path, it's definitely rare, but there's a lot of communities out there, especially in Discord. There's communities dedicated to different types of people. So there's communities that are open to everybody. There's communities dedicated to students. There's communities are dedicated to graduate students that are interested in joining this field after doing some background in a degree in mathematics or in physics. There's a lot of literal subcultures in it, which makes it really fun. And then there's really big projects that happen on a yearly basis like the Womanium Hackathon in which you're taught everything you need to know and it takes three weeks and it's super intense but it's completely free and open to everybody so that there's a lot to learn from open source you just need to start like scratching the surface and continuing seeing what the different projects are yeah you um you mentioned quite a few different um, opportunities for learning there and I've, I've discovered that in terms of the amount of um free education that's out there and I think that's part of the industry trying to encourage the types of resources and people that it needs right so in terms of uh, open source projects are there any that specifically that you've contributed to that you'd like to talk about I think there's a few in some of the different hackathons but is there any one particular you'd like to highlight I think the first open source project that ever contributed to was called sequence now, there's a few quantum networking simulators out there. A very popular one, a very well-known one, is NetSquid, which is supported and maintained by QTech. But, there's all, but the issue with NetSquid is all, always that it's not necessarily fully open source. Or at least the time that I was working with it, it wasn't. So I kind of started exploring other open source projects that were out there. And one of those was Sequence, which is a, I think it was by Argon Laboratories. And they basically simulate quantum networks with the different items that you might want to do. And that's how I started. That was the origin story before we, I started with hackathons and I did things like the Google Summer of Code. And that specific project was really fun because what I did is I started trying to build a specific uh, experimental setup that was supposed to be measure bell states. And I was only trying to learn how to use the software. I wasn't actually trying to contribute to it. But I very quickly realized I was missing an item in my experimental setup and that was a mirror. There was no mirror element in the software whatsoever. So I was, by, at that time, I was being helped by uh, researchers at Northern Arizona University and my mentor there said, hey, just build it, build the mirror element and add it to the software. And that's what I did. And then once I had this element that I knew it was working because the software was doing what it was supposed to do, the simulation was working, I was like, okay, I'm just going to submit it as an element into the project and see if they'll like it. And they did, and, and they pushed it into the project. That was my, my first little experience. Then another big experience and another big thing that I contributed to was Julia's Cliffergate Simulator. And that was a very big project. That was my first big library. And I was able to do that through Google Summer of Code. So there is this misunderstanding that open source is always, you always do it for free. You always have to do it in your own time. That's not necessarily true. There's a lot of funding available. Might not be as big as, well, obviously doing an internship or having a job, but it's a little bit of funding that can help you be able to get that time to work on these projects. So the Google Summer of Code is like a yearly program that happens during summer in which you can basically get in contact with different people doing open source, not just in quantum, but absolutely everything and get some funding to work on their projects or a bit of the projects. And that's what I did. I got some funding to work on a error correction library for an existing Clifford Gates simulator. So that was my first big project that took like multiple months to work in. And I think there's the most, like the ones that touched me the most. I've done little projects after that. I've 
contributed to code and no code projects. I have my own no code projects available on GitHub. I, I keep a very big log of every single paper I ever read that I find interesting. And I upload it to GitHub every now and then. And that's completely open for anybody to like upload things. I, I also have a list of YouTube channels for people to learn from quantum. Um, I, I, from that context, you can see I'm really into teaching other people and sharing my knowledge with other people. But I think those two projects, the sequence project and the Clifford Gay Simulator were like the ones that impacted me the most because they brought me into open source, even though at the time I didn't quite know that. Cool. Yeah. Lots of interesting topics. Uh, thanks for putting everything on GitHub. I've been using your YouTube uh, list. It's pretty pretty useful. It's introduced me to a few people. Maybe this is a sign of where your career might go. Who knows? Yeah, that's what yeah. I'm doing at the moment in IBM. I'm doing like education side of things. I find it really interesting. I'm just, I also still long for the research side of things. It's like the divide. Yeah, no doubt. Please provide all of the links to all of these, these repositories and, and the, your contributions, and we'll put them in the show notes, of course. But just a side topic. Uh, I've noticed a lot of the education programs that are put on are based on the summer. Have you noticed that? There's the IBM one, the Google one. I think there are others as well. I'm sorry if I haven't mentioned them. This is obviously based around students, isn't it? They've got the summer off. What are they going to do? They're hungry for more, more things to do, obviously. Do you think yeah. there'll be a Christmas one coming up soon? I think, it, well, also, it's a bit weird because a lot of the training happens in summer, but then if you look at the actual hackathons and the actual events, they actually happen quite a lot during the year. They're just less well known because obviously they're not introductions. They're like, you already know what you're doing. You can participate in these things. So it almost feels like you've got the summer to prepare and then the year to participate. But th there are little training programs that happen during the year too. There is a fall fest, which is like for Spanish speakers, which is also obviously happens in fall, not in summer. But yeah, no, you're definitely right. It is really, at least a training at the start is really focused on students simply because they're a big population that we're going to need in the future of quantum. The reality is that if you're training, you need to train a future workforce and whatever field you're in, that means training students. So there's definitely a focus towards STEM students and towards engaging them in quantum. It's not necessarily, hey, then 15 years time, can you please remember quantum computers exist? You know a little bit about them. You're a bit interested. Maybe we'll need you. I think that's more the perspective. At least I'm seeing in terms of doing training for students. It's a, we might not need you right this second, but give us 10 years and we might have a job for you. Yeah, I think as you're an IBM um, Kiskit advocate at the moment, or an intern, sorry. Perhaps you can advocate for a, a Christmas school and call it Kissmas. Yeah, yeah, it's dad jokes. Uh, let, me, let me go on. Also, Maria, I also wanted to ask you about the mirror that you, you wrote. And was it in the sequence uh, software that you contributed, the mirror? Yes. I, I'm intrigued to know what it is the mirror is doing. Is, this, is it simulating, the, is it simulating the, uh, an optical table or something? And the mirror, is it object on the table? or is, is it... Yes, that's pretty much it. So it was mirror, like I was basically trying to create an optical table. So there's this program that's called, I think it's VQOA or something like that, which is like a very simple simulator and which is, it feels like scratch. Like you literally just drag items into your optical table and it simulates that. So in the paper that publishes that software, there was different setups that they proposed. And one of those setups was a Belsade measurement setup. And it, the mirror just sent a like array from like the 
horizontal side of things to the vertical one. Like it didn't have any effect on anything, on latency or frequency or anything. So the item is pretty much really simple. It's just changing the angle of a ray. And that was at the time really hard for me to code because it was the first time I was doing it. But in, yeah. in itself, the project was incredibly simple. I'm pretty sure it broke when it was uploaded to the project itself. And some of the managers of the project had to fix it. But honestly, that's really normal in quantum open source projects or in any open source project. When you're contributing for the first time, you are going to break things and it's not going to work out. And it's going to be like incredibly simple. But that's how you start. That's how you start actually contributing and doing things. You need to break things before you're able to do things. I think back when I was at Cisco, I shut down a supercomputer for a day because I threw way too many <laughs> shots into it. I was doing this massive simulation that I definitely didn't need to be doing. I just decided to add zeros. I was like, instead of 100, why don't I do 10,000 of these repetitions? And I, I broke it. And that's kind of part of the learning journey. You need to participate in the project. You need to break the project. You need to do a hundred revisions to your update. And then when it's actually joined to the project, it's broken and you need to fix it. And that's the path I have. There's one Quiskit item that I have been working on for a year and it's still not working, but that's okay. That's what open source is. You're learning as you're contributing to these projects. And in a way you're contributing to like the ability that other people will have in future to use these projects. Yeah, that's a good attitude. I think you're, you're exuding your determination to just keep plugging away at it. And it doesn't matter if things break, as long as you're in a sandbox or a lab, then that's absolutely fine. Every time it breaks, you learn something new. That's the best way to look at it. Exactly. All right. So I'm the one who I'm always thinking about communications. So I'm thinking of, okay, we've talked about open source. We've talked a lot about quantum computing. Quantum computing is very popular, no doubt about that, especially relative to quantum communications. But when we look at what people think is going to be the first use case for quantum, it's probably something like quantum sensors, maybe quantum key distribution. So one could potentially argue there should be some more importance on quantum communication, at least in the terms of what people are thinking about. And I get these problems are less interesting. They're more about optical engineering, but these problems will be potentially the first business making problems that will be solved. So my question is basically, what do you think about the divide of quantum computing and quantum communication in terms of what people are being trained for, what people contribute to open source, the projects that are available, just from your perspective, what do you yeah. think? Yeah, I think uh, it's both a blessing and a curse situation. So there is a lot of hype around quantum computing and that comes with a lot of negative connotations because there's a lot of false preachers around like when i talk about quantum computing or quantum networking or any other type of quantum technology i make a really big point of letting people know what my background is that i am an undergraduate student i haven't even graduated i've only been in the industry for two years anything i say is probably wrong and that's okay but not everybody does that. Not everybody's completely open about their understanding. And even if you're a professor in quantum computing and you're teaching it at a university level, honestly, you don't know everything. It's impossible. You, anybody who claims they understand quantum mechanics or quantum computing just doesn't quite get it. And the issue that comes with that is when you get something to be very popular, you end up promising more than you can achieve and i think that's a situation that is happening quite a lot especially in startups quantum computing they don't quite understand the issues or the big problems that come with the word quantum computing and that's not always the case 
because I love Sada doing amazing work out there and putting out just incredible programs and hardware, but it is a symptom of the popularity, right? But then when you go into other technologies, they're less hyped. It's, it's less synonymous to AI or ML, right? It's less shiny, it's less fancy. And therefore you end up with teams and with people working much more grounded projects in my, at least in my experience. And you end up with people who have a much better understanding of what the specific issues they need to solve before the next step are, rather than getting all these noise and all these opinions. So I definitely think that it's more interesting to be there because at the end of the day, you are learning, at least from my experience, you are learning more how to solve a specific engineering problem than siding with these like false profits and false ideas. But on the other hand, you end up with less budget, you end up with less interest from customers, you end up from with the need to explain why these technologies need to exist, right? If you think about quantum networking specifically, people don't quite get why you would want to create a new way of communication. Um, with quantum security, right? You need to explain why it's a problem. Why do we need cryptography? Why do we need post-quantum cryptography? And why do we need it now? I'm less familiar with quantum sensors, but from my understanding, quantum sensors are like one of the most advanced quantum technologies out there and they're barely talked about. And it's really a shame because it could be like the first little item that we can show to the world of all these technologies look what they're bringing us to and the computers are interesting but i think we're getting confused between what are quantum technologies as a whole and what is that side of quantum technologies but there's this computer side and i think that just comes because it, it gets joined with other hype fields to get if you think AI, what's the biggest problem AI has? There is a limit to what AI can do, right? There's a limit to the computers. Oh, maybe quantum computers is a solution to that. And that, that type of thought, it's not necessarily negative, but it takes away from necessarily what the technology may bring us to. It's not a tool for AI. It might actually not be that good for AI, but it's a tool maybe for other things. I'm not, I'm not saying it shouldn't be used for AI. I'm just saying it's interesting how society as a whole and industry as a whole has taken in these words and maybe changed their meaning from the original purpose. And maybe that's a good thing and maybe that's a bad thing. But what it is leading us to is this misunderstanding that quantum computing is quantum technologies and that's not necessarily it. Yeah, makes sense because it's, I, I agree. It's like a lot of the problems that people have in their day-to-day -day job, especially in their studies, it's more about computing, writing programs, solving problems, machine learning, AI, these yeah. are topics. It's what you're familiar with. Exactly. Yeah. So it's not very often that someone during their studies, they encounter sensors, maybe unless they're studying physics specifically, but in mathematics, computer science, physics, who knows, you always encounter programming somewhere. And then just a natural extension of the knowledge goes to quantum compute. Yeah, well, with networking, like I, I had never even thought about networking before I joined mm. Cisco. I don't really know it was something. I just like the internet's out there. I know it's a game of waves, and I've got, I know I've got a router at home, and that's as much as I knew of networking. And I arrived at Cisco, and I was like, oh my god, this is a field, and this has a lot of stuff. And then instead of going into the classical version of that, I went to the quantum version of that. So it's a bit weird because there are fields that not everybody's familiar with, and not everybody knows about. And obviously, there's people who get like network engineering degrees. Obviously, I'm not saying everybody doesn't know anything about that. I'm just saying that the maybe the classical person that went into quantum 
physics back in the day was a physicist and therefore they may not have had that big of an understanding of all the other opportunities that they could do with these technologies. And that's the interesting bit we're in right now in which you're getting open to more than just physicists and you're starting to get chemists, you're starting to get engineers, you're starting to get like all these other people who are still very highly academically prepared who are saying, hey, wait a minute, this sounds interesting. Maybe we can simulate my little molecule with your computer or hey, maybe we can connect these two nodes for my telecommunication system. It's interesting to see how it's being opened to people who are not physicists and how that's really positively impacting the opportunities that we're seeing within the field. I think that opens up the services market as well significantly for people that can provide consulting around how to implement quantum technologies correctly for their specific business needs. And that might be very specific technology outcomes, or it may be particular optimization problems. I think these are the kind of things that we're seeing here in the market already with some success. Now, just sticking on the network topic. Yeah. What, what's your view? Give us a, an overview of your perspective on quantum networking, having spent a little bit of time at Cisco, considering you didn't have that networking background, and maybe that could be an interesting conversation for us to continue because obviously you've got, we've talked at length on this podcast about quantum cryptography, quantum security quantum networking, uh, both outside of a quantum device and also inside a quantum device between different components. What are your, what have you seen in the papers you've read? Perhaps put it that way. And, and what are your thoughts? There's a few things. So I, I, I hope I'm not making any mistakes while I say that, because again, I worked in that field for very little time. I think quantum networking is incredibly interesting. I, I've loved it when I worked in it, and I'm hoping that if I am able to continue through the academic path, I can continue through quantum networking. But the reason why I loved it so much is because there's so much to it. Um, with quantum computing, we don't quite understand what we're doing. With quantum networking, at least from my perspective, and maybe it's just because I didn't get it, it's we're throwing dots in the dock and we're seeing what works. If we look at the papers, uh, you see a lot of repeated names, right? There's maybe three or four institutions that are constantly putting out, let's just say, very high level and quote unquote, usable research in quantum networking as an existing field rather than a theoretical field, right? If you think quantum networking and you think academia, most of the time you think QTech. Then you have other groups that are working quantum networking. Uh, you have the Center of Quantum Networks in the United States. Then you also, for example, a couple of months ago, there was the first uh, quantum networking. It wasn't necessarily done by quantum networks, but the first safe quantum post-cryptography call done um, in Madrid, actually, which is where I'm from. So this is why I know this. That was done by universities there. So that was really interesting. But there's not, it's going slower in terms of the amount of papers that are coming out. And it's definitely really interesting. But a lot of the requirements to make quantum networking advance is to create quantum networks and break quantum networks and build quantum networks. But to create a testbed, you're going to take a few years and then when you create the testbed, you test it once, once. You test it, it works. Now you need to expand it. So give it another one or two years to expand that and create more and more. So it, and then once you've created those testbeds and once you made it work, you need to implement it into a technology. That's even more time, right? And there's less people working on it. There's less startups. There's less big companies interested in it. So it's definitely 
an interesting place to be in because you can do so much, right? There's so many opportunities and there's so many places that you can go and so many things that you can do. But it's definitely, it, it definitely requires some strong willingness to learn and some strong willingness to, because you need to understand what quantum computers are. You need to understand what quantum cryptography is. You need to have a little understanding of what networking is, even though I skipped that. <laughs> you need to understand what quantum information to its core is and how we're manipulating it and what type of things might affect it once you create a connection. Then you need to start thinking about the most mathematically sound proof to actually create this connection over a large network whilst you're working with simulators that cannot actually simulate these networks because you need a quantum computer to do that so it's i think it's really interesting i think it's a really big field i think there's a lot to do in it i absolutely loved it i found it incredibly interesting because it took in so many different bits of all the quantum technologies and put them together into a big solid list of problems and it's also just, it's also just cool. It's just outright, just a nice place to be at and learn at. But we're, give it 10 years, 15 years, maybe 20 years. It's not coming soon. At least maybe I'm wrong. Maybe since I left Cisco or other companies like Juniper Networks decided that they found the holy grail and they're just, they're going to tell us any moment now. But I think we're going to wait a little bit. And that's a cool bit of it because it means you can have a career in it because it's not going to appear tomorrow. Yes, pioneering stuff, absolutely. And most of the investment beyond QKD, which is a real technology now. And there's many manufacturers out there, with, with big, especially the likes of Toshiba with a lot of success. But ultimately what they're doing is just is, is sending photons over, over the link, right? Point to point over a dark fiber and everything intelligent or Everything advanced, shall I say, is happening on the end device itself, uh, which to somebody that works at, at Cisco and has had a, a lifetime in networking, I wouldn't really call that networking. I'd just call that connecting two things together with a, <laughs> with yeah. an optical cable. Uh, but but it, is, it is because there's distance involved, right? Yeah, but the more advanced stuff, which includes repeaters, more entanglement, more call it whatever you want. That's the stuff that is definitely 20 years out, I'm sure. And it's going to be crazy to to follow the, the development of it over time. Steve? Yeah, I'm thinking the same. It's, but it's a, at least a defined path, what we need to do to get there, I think. So from my perspective, although one could argue the practicality of QKD, yes or no, but for me, there's one obvious answer that it is practical, at least maybe not in what it's meant to be doing. That's fine. If it's secure or not, I don't like to argue these points, but Developing quantum networks, I think, relies on the development of QKD. It's, for me, the stepping stone application. So once that's done, there's so many doors that open up. So I think we're following this trajectory of QKD. On the side, we have these arguments. And NIST is saying something. I don't know. All these organizations saying something. There's back and forth now. Who's right? Who's wrong? For me, it doesn't matter. What's the point? As a scientist, it's about uh, building, finding something out that's <laughs> not known. And yeah, I think that's the, at least the, if you follow it from that trajectory, you see how well the, the development path of QKD is, especially in terms of what happens on the side about standardization, organizations working together, collaboration between countries, all those things that are happening for QKD will eventually happen for I don't know, entanglement distribution or bigger scale quantum networks. So I think this is just like a training ground. We're just doing something with QKD and it's working. And I think that's why I believe Q, um, Quantum networks will exist at some at some point in time. I don't can't predict the timeline, but 
yeah, it's just nice to see that it's developing and it's maybe a predictor. I think we could easily say 10 years, we'll have some big developments because you can just tra traject with QKD. Maybe you don't know the answer to this question, but is that because of the entanglement based protocols, uh, which are, are being used o over long links and then the entanglement is used in the algorithms to identify a key or to ensure that there's nobody interfering. Is it the use of that entanglement then in future systems or networks of some kind that gives you that feel that it's a stepping stone? So QKD at the moment, the most popular uh, protocols don't use entanglement, at least not in a way that quantum repeaters use entanglement. Okay. The ones that are commercially available. That's not to say they don't exist protocols that okay. use entanglement like that, but the ones that have so the most success. They, so they're prepare and measure. Is that right? They are sending photons and measuring them as they go across the link and then manipulating and managing that way. Yes. The ones that you can buy, like Toshiba's platform, okay. IDQuantique, Huawei, I think they're all prepare and measure based. I, I could be wrong, I did double check, but I'm almost certain that's the case. So that's one thing. Making entanglement, distributing entanglement, making the fidelity high enough to use, it's very challenging. And that's why I think, yeah, that's not why it's not, that's why I think it's not sold yet. It's too noisy. But it's coming. I think you, every day you see a new result. Every week there's a new result. Entanglement fidelity up. Quantum memory. Today two papers are out. Coincidentally have the same distance, 101 kilometers, very precise. I don't know if it's the same network or not. I have to read the papers, but I saw even just this morning some interesting things happening over longer distances with entanglement. So it's a matter of waiting, I think. Yeah, but it's, it's such an expensive option, isn't it? Compared to proposed quantum cryptography, quantum safe algorithms and things. And it's not only expensive, it's restrictive in terms of needing a dark fiber, a point to point connection. And in time, I guess we want to see mm -hmm. both of those things change for it to become a bigger part of the quantum internet, if whatever that's going to look like. Mm -hmm. The dark fiber, I'm not yeah, sure exactly if it's completely necessary. It definitely for now, yes, but it's, it's experiments potentially without, but sorry, Maria. <laughs> I was just going to say, at the end of the day, they're engineering problems, right? They, they, especially I think in quantum networking, we're taking it away from the physicists a little bit and saying, okay, this is the system that we're working with. These are the rules. These are the different leads we can follow. Let's try everything and see what works. So at least from my time in quantum networking, maybe it was just a symptom of the people I was working with who were engineers. It, I saw it much more as an engineering problem, right? We've got these roles to play with, these problems to fix. Let's just start building stuff and start breaking stuff. And that's also why I think I found it really fun because it wasn't that focused on necessarily the mathematical, theoretical side of things, although that was obviously a really important bit of it, but also on the, let's just try different ventures and see what we can do with these systems from there and see what, as an with an engineer mindset, what type of problems we can solve within which timelines, rather than just pondering and looking at the whiteboard. I think that time with the whiteboard is well spent as long as you're drawing oh, on absolutely. it. Absolutely. It's necessary. I have a whiteboard in my background right now. I love whiteboards. But I think that there is a necessity to eventually leave the whiteboard and just definitely, try things, definitely. simulate things, try things in a test bed, and then come back and circle back. Because if we don't do that, we don't progress. Yeah, how does somebody do that if they want to? Is it all academia orientated? Do you think, or are that you mentioned hackathons? They, I imagine, in most cases they're software orientated or simulator orientated. But are there hardware platforms that are available for people to test or try or to work with it? Or, I imagine not. So right? The heartbreaking news here is that probably not. 
I'm sure there's things out. I'm sure there's like little projects that you can do. But the reality is, if you want to work this at a high level, on a research level, in a paid role, you're going to have to eat the academia side of things. If you like it or not, that's going to be part <laughs> of it. Now, there is ways to start working on these types of projects and maybe as a way to learn if you actually want to do this, because obviously academia is a lot of investment. You're investing time, you're investing maybe the loss of other opportunities, right? Because of the time that you're spending there, because of the investment that you're putting here in terms of effort. So there's definitely... Again, circling back to like open source, there's projects out there that you can contribute in that you will need to learn a lot before you actually can fix an issue that they have. So maybe that's a good place to start and just test out if this is the type of problem, the type of field that you want to work in. But the reality is, if you want to make this into a career right now and you want to work in the research side of things, there are opportunities outside of research side of things. The role I'm doing right now, it doesn't require me to have the academic level of a professor simply because I'm, I'm working with like education, academia and partners. And arguably, it's more useful for me to not have the very in-depth view because I need to be able to teach it to other people. I need to be able to collaborate with different types of people. But if you want to do the research you're gonna need to pass to the academic little stamp which is sad but no it's this this the framework that's there right so maria i think i'd like to talk about like the overall quantum ecosystem i'd like to talk about uh, what's coming over the horizon i hear a lot about sensing and imaging and things and but I, i know nothing about that at this point in time have you come across that in your research and where do you think that's going to be they have really fun metric to know what's coming out first. And I think it's not the metric that most people use. My metric is what PhDs are coming out. So obviously, I'm currently in that scene in which I know I'm graduating in this, not this summer, but next summer, so in a few months. And I'm deciding, do I want to spend like another year in industry? Do I want to try out something new? Or do I want to just go down academia, right? And that means that I'm looking out for PhDs and opportunities out there. I, and especially for funded ones, right? And a very fun way of knowing what's coming up soon is to just open that, like open Find My PhD, put in the word quantum and see how many funded opportunities show up for every single type of quantum technology. So I'm going to tell you, sensing and imaging, that's pretty big right now because there's so many opportunities. Even within the same university, there's outright people who are building out groups from scratch. I think two days ago, I saw a university, I can't remember which university it was, I think it was in the UK, it was five PhD opportunities coming out for quantum imaging, all within the same university. And it's like, oh my God, that's interesting. That's a pretty big, like a little boom. Yes, exactly. So I think because of how the development of technologies goes, right? And there's a point in which your technology becomes viable in terms of being useful and not just being a money drain. Um, we, anybody who has worked with quantum computers knows that quantum computers are currently a money drain and are going to be for a few more years, right? And that's why really the big players are the only ones that can properly play the game because you need to have IBM type of budgets to do IBM type of research, right? Um, or you need to be in an academic institution. But with other stuff, with quantum sensing, with quantum imaging, we're starting to see not necessarily smaller groups, but like smaller teams from maybe hospitals or maybe other types of research institutions who are taking it in. And we're starting to see a big boom of that being reflected into the necessity in academia, right? So I 
without having any proper understanding of quantum imaging and quantum sensing is, because I've never worked with it, I've never touched it. The closest I've been to it has been understanding how we could use uh, quantum networks with quantum sensors, uh, which is not nothing similar to actually working in the field. I can tell you already that's coming. That's probably what going to be one of the things that's coming out soon by my beautiful PhD metric. If we pass that quantum sensing and quantum imaging side of things. I think the next thing that's actually really popular right now in academia is quantum algorithms. Uh, simply because we've got these computers, they're not perfect, they're really noisy, they're not that useful, but we can start pushing stuff into them. And that's interesting because we can start like testing out ideas, right? And you need to be able to create people who understand quantum mechanics and quantum gates to the point in which they can actually transform your little physical idea into a code. Right, so that's another big thing that's coming in terms of preparing people that I'm finding really interesting. Hardware side of things, optics people have always been there. They will always be there. They will take whatever uh, side and role they want in. As long as you need light, yeah. Exactly. Optics opportunities are always there. They come with different types of wording. They're not always necessarily quantum tech in the way we think about it. I've talked with a lot of people who are doing PhDs and they wanted to optics thinking they were going to like work with qubits directly. And they realized that's not what they were doing. They were doing like this type of different testing that I don't necessarily understand. But obviously that side of hardware is there. The, I'm starting to see more and more um, alternative qubits positions being open to. So people who are researching types of qubits or are trying to improve the fidelity or the quality of certain qubits that already exist. So that's already out there too. And then in the big quantum tech labs, so you have labs that are dedicated to certain technologies, right? If you're looking at a lab that's dedicated within an institution to quantum networking, those opportunities are going to come out, right? And in quantum networking, what I'm seeing is more hardware set of things than software. Software exists, uh, but it's mostly hardware work um, with different types of like connections. And I think that's pretty much what I've been seeing around just from the my stage of the career side of things, right? It's quantum imaging, quantum sensing that's pretty popular right now for whatever reason that I do not understand, but I'm sure anybody who goes in will figure it out. <laughs> then there's the quantum software side of things. It's accessible, it's open to everybody, and it may so help us solve problems for the future and also it's playing a, it will play a really important role which is the training the people who are going to be able to work with these machines later on and then quantum hardware you've got your classical ideas that apply to a new technology yeah the sensing one really interests me we've heard in the press about quantum sensors used for a highly advanced gps without the need for a satellite system and i'm imagining that some kind of really smart accelerometer that's working at the atomic level. And I guess when it comes to all of the other types of measurements we take in our everyday lives, in our machines and systems, like temperature, magnetic field, rotation, things like that, that's really taking all of those to the next level. So I guess it's a big market and for there to be that amount of investment in one university, it's just one corner case, but it, for you to see it at the top of your list or your metric, then I guess that's, that's a sign perhaps that there is, um, the technology is closer to being ready for commercialization. I'm, I'm guessing, would you, do you think that would be a driver for a dean in university or a professor that's looking to yeah. develop some, well, some new technologies? 
I think so, because at the end of the day, academia as industry is run by budget. And the reality is you might have the best idea in the world, but you need to find the budget and the support to actually research it. And quantum sensing and quantum imaging bring in different, very interesting type of investors from the medical field or from the military field. And those, those types of investors bring in decent budgets. So I think that just by that metric, it does make sense. Um, it also makes sense because it's, it's a technology that's based on quantum mechanics, but it doesn't necessarily come with the big hurdles that creating a quantum network or quantum computer might bring in terms of just what you're trying to achieve, right? You're trying to manipulate the field in a way which you can sense or image something, which is not the same as, hey, uh, create a computer that's um, much Sending faster. information, yeah. Yeah, and better than any other thing that we have around and that uh, solves like the, the problems that we have in quantum mechanics or connect one qubit to another from 100 kilometers. It's not the same. And maybe I'm completely wrong about this. And maybe I'm just seeing it with a very simple view, which is completely possible. But at least from my perspective, it's not exactly the same type of complexity in terms of what you're trying to achieve, the aspirations, right? And there's a lot of interest for very good reason from both medical side of things and military side of things. And that's always a big push for things. It's a bit similar to why there was a big there is a lot of noise about post-quantum cryptography. Banks know they need post-quantum cryptography and they want it now. And that's why there's a lot of movement in post-quantum cryptography because there is this very, I'm going to say the word supporters, <laughs> market that wants to support it right now. So it makes sense. Anybody who maybe... If we look at computing side of things and you look at who might want quantum computers, um, those people know that those computers aren't coming in three years. So even though there's insane budget and insane support for them, there is a lesser need for urgency and same thing with quantum networks. The technology, we know it will come because we're working on it, but there's not this very urgent desire from a specific group for it to come right this second because they need it for certain use. Yeah, I love the conversations around uh, quantum cryptography and that you hear different perspectives on how urgent it is. Right. Of course, there's the whole fear, uncertainty and doubt that's being thrown around about store and decrypt later. Uh, and actually, the fact that there aren't any quantum computers out there that could break an algorithm yet. Nobody can actually run Shaw's algorithm to the extent that needs to break RSA 2048. But yeah, it's, it's a little bit of an industry working on fear, but that's security. That's cybersecurity. That's what it's all about. But also, yeah. I think it comes hand in hand with the geopolitical climate that we're in right now. The oh, fear yeah. of there being evil agents from whatever side of the reactivated Cold War you're in, basically. You see it, there is this fear that is created and that just grows the requirement or the desired creative necessity for this type of security. I think it's definitely really interesting, especially as an undergraduate. I, it's definitely really interesting seeing how much urgency there is created on something that we might not need right now. I think the biggest argument that I've seen for it, which kind of made sense, was this idea that if an evil agent had obtained certain information, they would be able to decrypt it once quantum computers came. But even in that sense, I think that the, the scenarios that are being built, and maybe that's just because I haven't worked on security, are not necessarily as urgent as we might think they are. 
I think that's the beauty of being so young in my career that I can just say this idea and just be like, I clean my hands. I have no idea. I'm just here for the ride. I'm learning. <laughs> yeah, it's all a learning, learning process. Don't worry, I'm still learning. Come on, you don't stop learning. Uh, ideally, that's, that's the best way to be, in my opinion. All right, I did have one more question about, um, basically, it's, it's about back to kind of where we were before with the workforce training. I guess one thing is I noticed is there are internship opportunities. There's a lot of possibilities to start you know, working in quantum. But do you believe that it's enough? Do you think people who want to be in quantum have a chance to do quantum? For example, if you come from a different place where there's no one to teach you, it's hard to know where to start, for example. Do you think that there's enough going on to help people from potentially third world country where they don't have access to information as easily as we might have? So yeah, I'm just curious what no. you, what do you think yeah. about that? Uh, absolutely. No, I think there's a lot of efforts being put into it. I think the quantum community is conscious of this because right now I'm working with like the European and African quantum community team in IBM and there's a lot of support and desire to make um, quantum more accessible. But the reality is that at least from what I've seen, there's a lot of privilege with having an opportunity to work in quantum, right? The opportunity and the path I've taken so far has been, I was in the right place at the right time, right? It's not the normal path for somebody in quantum, but even that opportunity of being in the right place in the right time was because back when I came into the UK, I had the uh, pre-Brexit deal. After Brexit, I had the post-Brexit deal, which allowed me to work in a company in the UK, which ended up being an American multinational company that had the investment on the time to let me work in this specific project and to learn for these people who have these amazing backgrounds, right? And uh, if you start like just the knitting all of that and looking from all that, it was a scenario of like right place and not everybody can be in the right place, right? I think if you go down the route of academia, it becomes much easier just because there was, I think, a quote a couple of years back from one of the headleys of the IBM quantum team in the States, in New York, in which he said that he could probably hire every single graduate that graduated that year in the States with a PhD in quantum and it still wouldn't be enough for his workforce necessities. But the reality is that before that step, before being able to get there, and even with the opportunity to actually be able to get into that side of academia, there's a lot of privilege and there's a lot of opportunities that are close to certain type of people. And that is really a shame. But it is a symptom that we need to be conscious of. It is a symptom not just in quantum, but in quite a lot of the tech world. And I think we, as a community, are putting an interest in making that less of a thing. The issue have is that the reality is if you want to work in quantum software, you need English because that's, that's how you learn Python, which is the first step. Then you need to go into an academic institution in which they will be able to teach quantum from the tech perspective. Right, right now in my university, they don't work with quantum computers. We have a great optics department, but um, I'm actually choosing like my dissertation for the end of my bachelor's next month. And I'm 100% sure I'm going to have no chance of doing anything related to quantum get to quantum networking in the non-hardware side of things or in the non-optics related side of things no opportunity to do like theoretical quantum mechanics like that's just not going to happen and I, i'm still working in this field right i'm still like having all these doors open for me that i've worked for but that i've also had the chance to be in and if that's just what happens to me in my small scale level i don't want to even think about the just loss of people that we're living just because of the opportunities that don't exist i think we'll make it work i think it'll get better it's also just comes with the definition of being a young field 
But yeah, no, that's definitely a really interesting thing to take into account when you come into the field is the fact that there is a lot of privilege with having had the opportunity to join in, no matter from what perspective you're coming. And if you've had that chance and you've had that opportunity, use it. You, you can contribute a lot. You can have a lot of fun. You can create a lot of things. Use that opportunity and that interest that you initially had into making the world maybe a better place, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, there's, I know there's quite a lot of places to go to learn these things. Like It's all free, the quantum open source, even just at yeah. participating in Penny Lane Slack or the KissKit Slack. You can go and ask a lot of questions. Anyone can go there and ask a lot of questions. And it's, but still, I think it's too challenging to just know where to start. If you come from somewhere where there's not much quantum action and then, oh, I saw a book, I want to start quantum work. What to do? What's the first step? <laughs> I think it's, it's very yeah. challenging, especially if your university doesn't there's have also, There's also, I think, a lot of countries are starting to realize that is a thing. I just came last month from the from a hackathon that was organized by the National Center of Quantum Networks here in the UK. And I went in there as an IBM provider. And what they did there, they, they do this yearly hackathon in which they have providers of quantum computers. So that might be a big multinational like IBM who come in with their system or even like local startups. So I don't actually think you can define Orca as a startup anymore. But le- companies who also have their own quantum system of quantum computers like Orca in the UK, right? And they bring in all these providers and they take in postgraduate students. So that was master's and PhD level. Anybody studying in a UK university can apply. And then they take them, they divide into these groups, divided by the skill set that they have, and they make them work in problems that exist in the UK as a country. So, for example, they had people from like the NHS, which is the National Health, the National Health Service. I don't know. The, I don't never remember what the S stands for, but like the National Healthcare Services here in the UK. Right. And they, yeah. Oh, great. <laughs> they came here with prob- They came in with problems, and these students like had to take care of the quantum systems, learn how to use them, and try to solve the problem on within a specific time frame. And I was done uh, through the UK government um, funds. And that's maybe a fun way or an interesting way to create workforce on a national level. But it definitely also comes with the necessity to have these stripes of innovation drives at the national level, which doesn't happen everywhere. So it's an interesting problem to solve. It's also, I always think of um, language as being a very big barrier because I had the opportunity to learn a lot of languages when I was young and I, I can speak English, but I also have a lot of friends who don't necessarily have those skills just because of the background they came from. And that is like massive, like not knowing how to learn English immediately closes like almost any academic door that you could ever go through just because you need to read papers and what are papers written in and then you've got code right and you got python and you got julia and you got all these other languages you need to know what if else means and it's not just language there's other things there's just the opportunities and availability of quantum research being in your area but it's it's definitely really interesting i definitely don't think this is a specific quantum problem though i think this is a wider issue with research and academia and I think it's STEM as well in a, bro- in a broader yeah. sense, because it's a layering of mathematics in a language of itself, right? You, that's, first of all, you need that strong foundation and it's quite advanced mathematics as well. Matrices, vectors, and all that kind of stuff. And then the, you mentioned English and then you mentioned, you mentioned Python and it's uh, this layering of all these different ways of communicating that are necessary. So it's I hard to instill able- that. 
Yeah, you need to be able to learn it and teach it in a way that works for quite a lot of different people. So basically anybody who is like neurodivergent, has different types of learning needs, might not find the way to pass a specific step of the way, right? So it's definitely really interesting. And then there's also like the representation and diversity side of things, which is also like an existing problem in all of STEM. I think that it's slowly changing. It's slowly coming back to what it should have always been, really. But the reality is that everybody who works in this field at a certain level should be conscious of it. I think there's a lot of people who don't quite understand why these things are a problem, why these things are a necessity. But hopefully as it's more and more promoted and there's more and more explanations of why diversity is an important thing, why accessibility is an important thing, why there should be open source projects, uh, maybe they'll help just push for that. Great. Thank you. Steve, is there anything you want to end on? I love putting you on the spot. (laughs) (laughs) The one thing that I think is one big variable is it's just a a thing that even if you're the best in the world, it always comes down to not only that, it's not like you can do these things alone. I think that's a big challenge as well. So even if you study all the books, learn all the maths, learn all the languages, the opportunities also come from who you're connected to. And that's a shame as well, I think. Because it's hard to find the people who are willing to help and bring them, give them the opportunities that they need or, yeah, I think that's, it's just. Yeah, no, absolutely. If Santana back in Cisco hadn't said, yes, come with me. And then Sam back in Cisco hadn't said, hey, I'm going to teach you. I'm going to mentor you on this. And then Stefan Graskinov, like in Google Summer Code was like, yes, I'm going to take you in. And if there hadn't been all these people who said, yes, Mm -hmm. I'm going to invest my time in teaching you something just because. I want to, not because anybody's forcing me or because like I'm actually gaining or profiting anything from this because they're not. The reality is Stefan would have written the library I wrote him with his eye closed in two weeks and would have gained so much time that voicing and explaining to me, you're doing everything wrong, Maria, start again, right? But because there were so many people who said yes and because I was the right place to meet those people, it's, it's really just, it reminds you that you have worked for what you're getting right now. You have definitely put all the effort. You've done all the necessary steps, but not everybody gets these op- opportunities. Not everybody meets the right people at the right time. And I think especially as you go up in your career, you need to, at least my mindset is, I need to give that back, right? What my time is to be that manager and to be that person who's being asked mm-hmm. by an intern, can I work in your project? The goal is to be able to say, yes, come in, I'll teach you. I'll actually invest my time into you. Because that was done to me before. And I think creating that type of community is really important. And honestly, I think like open source, the open source ecosystem is being really good at starting to create that type of mindset in quantum in which you need to have an open door and you need to invite people in because that's the only way we're going to grow as an ecosystem. That's the only way you're going to advance because you're inviting and teaching people. Mm-hmm. And I definitely think there's, there's starting to be a focus on that. It's starting to happen more and more and it will hopefully happen more and more as the field becomes bigger and bigger. But we need to remind ourselves to do that. Yeah, I completely agree. And I still remember 10 years ago, just getting, I don't know if it's been how long, it's been something like 10 years. And I could see from my own perspective, it's changed a lot. Like when I was looking for internships in my bachelor's, there were no quantum computing companies. I think maybe IBM was just starting. But yeah, now you can see the communities, there's people willing to help. It's not just university professors anymore. It's just people around the world who are just working on the topic. 
it's, it's no satisfaction. Steve, for a young man, for a young man, you're already showing your age. That's how fast the industry is moving. I yeah, think that's, that's the sign it. of what that is. <laughs> the academic weights they make you age faster. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was actually like really excited when I saw the role I'm in at the moment. Because if you look at internships, the quantum internships, it's all PhD requirement. Maybe if you're lucky, you'll see a master's requirement. But it's always a PhD requirement. So like when I saw the role I'm doing right now and it's uh, students, undergraduates will be considered. I was like, oh, oh my God. And I just ran. I just immediately on the spot, like uploaded the CV, wrote the cover letter. I followed the manager that was putting it out. Like it was just a little like, oh my God, this has appeared. This exists. There is a job that doesn't require me to be doing a PhD. Because also sometimes it's just, oh, you need a PhD and to be finishing this summer. I was like, okay, <laughs> we're going to wait five years for that. But yeah, no, it's definitely changing and growing. So it's a good thing, hopefully. Yeah, I think it's just a, a sign of the times. It's just a very risky field. Companies are putting money and they oh, want yeah. something back. And if you have to spend most of the training just to bring them up to speed, it's... <laughs> I can see, I can understand why, but it's unfortunate, but that's what money does, <laughs> you know, it's not about just, yeah, no, especially with generous. startups, it under, it's understandable. There is, you need to put something out to be able to continue surviving as a company. Yeah. And for that, you can't really be spending your time training people, which is a shame, but it's, it is also true. Yeah. Great. I think we're going to wrap it up. Maria, thank you so much for joining us. We covered so much ground. Uh, across the whole industry, and I got exactly what I what I wanted, which was your perspective as an undergraduate, with all these doors opening in front of you. And it's fascinating to hear that you're having a great time at IBM. Is is just to close it off? Is there anything you'd like to advertise or say about what you're doing at IBM that that it would be useful for the listeners? And then perhaps we can just we can finish it there. Yeah, sure. I think. Honestly, if I had to talk about IBM for quantum or anything, I'm just going to say it's a great starting point. You want to try out quantum, no matter where you are in your career. The easiest way to do that is open the QuizKit textbook because it's got an associated uh, open source project. It's got a really big community. There is a Slack channel. There's a Discord channel. There's projects that keep happening all the time. There's little badges that I'll give you. So it's a really good starting point as a community to start in. And that's what I'm working in, the, like the community. Maybe I'm working at a national level, but it exists on a global level. It's a great community to join. And from there, you can continue your journey because they have a lot of recommendations. Like if you go through a textbook, they'll give you your lesson. And at the end of it, it'll have associated resources. And then maybe I'll recommend you three books. And if you click on those books and you read those books, you'll learn more and more. And it has a lot of use case software. So you can look up like the Quizkit version of the traveling salesman problem and learn how to solve that problem with a quantum system from the same textbook that you've learned your one-on-one on quantum information, right? So it's a good yeah. starting place, I think. That's great. It is. They've, they've tried to make it soup to nuts, I think, in terms of education, right? Starting from the basics. I've read a fair bit of the textbook and I went on a summer school and they're both really good. And for somebody that's got the time, they can stick to that and end up with uh, a point where they can try and solve some problems. Yeah, superb. All right. Well, thank you for that. Thanks very much. Thanks for your time. Yeah, thanks a lot. I'd like to take this moment to thank you for listening to the podcast. Quantum networking is such a broad domain, especially considering the breadth of quantum physics and quantum computing, all as an undercurrent, easily to get sucked into. So much is still in the research realm, uh, which can make it really tough for a curious IT guy to know where to start. So 
hit subscribe or follow me on your podcast platform. And I'll do my best to bring you more prevalent topics in the world of quantum networking. Spread the word, it would really help us out. Thank mm-hmm. you.